to Doctors of the Church. In this fascinating series, Father Charles Connor examines the lives and writings of all 33 Doctors of the Church, including St. Thomas Aquinas, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and Catherine of Siena. Now, here's Father Connor. Do not lose heart, O soul. Do not grieve. Pronounce not over yourself a final judgment for the multitude of your sins. Do not commit yourself to fire. Do not say, the Lord has cast me from his face. Such words are not pleasing to God. Can it be that he who has fallen cannot get up? Can it be that he who has turned away cannot turn back again? Do you not hear how kind the father is to a prodigal? Do not be ashamed to turn back and say boldly, I will arise and go to my father. Arise and go. He will accept you and will not reproach you. But rather, he will rejoice at your return. He awaits you. Just do not be ashamed. And do not hide from the face of God as did Adam. It was for your sake that Christ was crucified. So, will he cast you aside? He knows who oppresses us. He knows that we have no other help but him alone. They are beautifully optimistic words when you stop to think of it. They tell us what repentance is really all about. They were written by Ephraim the Syrian deacon. And Ephraim the Syrian deacon was one of the doctors of the church who was officially proclaimed in the decade of the 1920s. There were three of them in that decade. Ephraim the Syrian deacon, the German Jesuit Peter Canisius, and the Spanish Carmelite John of the Cross. As we welcome you to this broadcast on the Doctors of the Church, we want to examine then these three doctors proclaimed by Holy Mother Church in the decade of the 1920s. Ephraim the Syrian deacon was proclaimed a doctor of the church by Pope Benedict XV in 1920, just as the decade was opening. He was very famous in his lifetime as a great teacher a great orator, a poet, a commentator, and a defender of the faith. He is the only Syrian father who has been declared a doctor of the Universal Church. The Syrians to this day call Ephraim the harp of the Holy Spirit, and they enrich their liturgies with many of his homilies and many of his hymns. So this fourth century man was an exceptionally important one. St. Basil described him as one who was conversant with knowledge of all that is true. And St. Jerome, the, the great, great scripture scholar, whom we talked about in an earlier episode, captured Ephraim the Syrian deacon very well. This is what he said about him. He said, Ephraim, deacon of the church of Edessa, wrote many works in Syriac, and he became so famous that his writings are publicly read in some churches after the sacred scriptures. I have read in Greek a volume of his on the Holy Spirit. Though it, is, though it was only a translation, I recognized therein the sublime genius of the man. 
That was St. Jerome, the great biblical scholar, talking about Ephraim, the Syrian deacon. His chief interest, I think, to most historians and students of the church in general is that we owe to Ephraim the deacon the introduction of sacred songs into the church's public liturgy, whether it be into the liturgy of the Mass or whether it be into the liturgy of the Hours, the, the Office, as we call it. Uh, it was really St. Ephraim, Ephraim the Syrian deacon who, who uh, gave us this first practice. He was born, said Ephraim, about the year 306 A.D. in Mesopotamia, which was an area that was still under Roman rule. In all probability, his parents were pagan, because at the age of 18, when Ephraim decided to be baptized, they were anything but happy about it. He was a very religious young man. He became quite friendly with a bishop, and he accompanied that bishop to the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Much of Ephraim's life was spent living in a cave on a rather rocky hill overlooking the town of Edessa. His biographer captures him well and talks about this life in the cave. Here he led a most austere life, sustained only by a little barley bread and a few vegetables. And here he wrote a greater part of his spiritual works. His appearance was indeed that of an ascetic. He was of small stature, bald, beardless, and with skin shriveled and dried up. His gown was all patches, the color of dirt. He wept much and never laughed. Now, I almost start to laugh when I read that. He wept much and never laughed. Sounds like a very, very serious person. I suppose he probably was. Many of the saints, you know, were tremendously joyous. They were laughing all the time. It's curious to me to see, or to hear, or rather, a description of a man who wept much and never laughed. Well, he assumed that was his lot in life, one supposes. Considering what he did for the church, he was entitled, I suppose, to weep and not to laugh, because he is a very, very eminent doctor of the church. That cave was his headquarters, but he certainly was not a reclusive man. He was very much concerned with all of the various questions that affected the church, especially the church in Edessa. He called Edessa the city of blessing, and he exerted a great deal of influence there. Once again, his biographer notes, he frequently preached there in Edessa, and when with fiery eloquence, he treated of the second coming of Christ and of the last judgment. The sobs of the congregation nearly drowned his words. So he was a very, very effective preacher, to say the least, and a very active and influential man in the town where he lived. The last time that Ephraim seemed to take part in public affairs was during the winter of 372-373 A.D., and when he did go out to take part in public affairs, he engaged in a work that must have overtaxed his strength and probably even contributed to his, to his death. The account of what he did is interesting. There was a famine in the land, and his heart was wrung by the sufferings of the poor. When rich men excused themselves from opening their granaries and their purses on the plea that no one could be trusted to make a fair distribution, he offered his services, and they were accepted. He administered the large sums of money, and the stores entrusted to him to the satisfaction of all. Besides organizing a relief service, which included the provision of 300 liters 
for carrying to the sick. Well, in his day, Ephraim the Syrian deacon was a very prolific writer. And of the works that have come down to us, some of them are written in the original Syriac language. Others are in Greek or Latin or Armenian translations. What kind of works did he write? Well, first of all, he wrote exegetical works, the study of scripture. He wrote polemical works, doctrinal works defending the faith, and he even wrote poetry. His scriptural commentaries included practically all of the Old Testament and much of the New Testament. A critique of his work, whatever kind of work we may want to be talking about, was given some years ago by a modern-day student of Ephraim, and this is what he writes. What impresses the reader most is the realistic and humanly sympathetic spirit in which he discourses of all the great mysteries of man's redemption. He seems to have anticipated that attitude toward our Savior's physical sufferings, which does not notably manifest itself in the West before the period of St. Francis of Assisi. Well, St. Francis of Assisi in the West was going to be much, much later than Ephraim the Syrian deacon in the East. And he is anticipating by his writings, bringing someone into close, close proximity with the sufferings of Christ. It's a tremendously talented writer who can do it. And obviously Ephraim the Syrian deacon was that tremendously talented writer. The date of his death comes down to us by the Chronicle of Edessa. And the best of authorities say that he did indeed die in 373 A.D. There is some dispute about it, but for the most part, I think it's probably safe to, to uh, say that he left this world in the year 373 A.D. Well, five years after Ephraim the Syrian deacon was proclaimed the doctor of the church, the successor of Pope Benedict XV, who was Pius XI, had the occasion to name his first doctor. Pius XI would name four doctors of the church in the course of his pontificate. And of the four doctors he would name, two of the doctors were Jesuits. The doctor, the first Jesuit doctor we would concern ourselves with, of course, was the German Jesuit, St. Peter Canisius. But in naming not only Canisius, but another Jesuit who we will look at in a succeeding episode, Pope Pius XI was saying something about the Society of Jesus. He was saying something about the enormous contributions that they had rendered to the church. He was talking about the universities that they founded, the books that they wrote, the articles and journals that they published, the tremendous defense of the faith the Jesuits gave from the time of their inception under St. Ignatius of Loyola, the fact that they took that fourth vow of loyalty to the Holy Father and willingness to go wherever their Jesuit superiors sent them because the Jesuit superior was reflecting the attitude of the vigor of Christ. All of these things come into play so Pius XI was making, in 1925, a very strong statement in the naming of St. Peter Canisius as a doctor of the church. Peter was actually born, we, we refer to him as a German Jesuit, he was actually born in 1521 in a, in a small town in what would be Holland today. It was then a German Reichstag, and it was located in the Archdiocese of Cologne. As Peter Canisius describes his early life, he says that as a young man he wasted time. 
Now, he may have wasted some time, but when you stop to think that he took his Master of Arts degree at the University of Cologne at the age of 19, it's a little hard to see how he could have been wasting time. He came from a very well-to-do family. His parents wanted him to be a lawyer. They wanted him to have success in the world. So just to please his parents, he decided that he would go to the University of Louvain in Belgium and for a brief period of time study not civil law, but rather canon law. So he went to the University of Louvain, he studied canon law for a brief while, knew that the, the legal profession was not the profession that he wanted to follow, and decided that God had indeed another plan in store for him. That plan was ordination to the priesthood, and most particularly it was ordination to the priesthood in the Society of Jesus. The Society was quite new when Peter Canisius entered it, and the way he entered it was through the influence of Peter Faber, now, Peter Faber was one of the original Jesuits who had formed the Society of Jesus, or the Company of Jesus, as they were called, with Ignatius Loyola. And Peter Faber became an extraordinary preacher, and he was preaching through many of the Rhineland towns in Germany. Well, Peter Canisius went to hear one of the sermons of Faber in the German town of Mainz. And he knew right then and there that not only did he have a vocation to the priesthood, but he had a vocation to the Society of Jesus. And so he presented himself to the Minister General of the Jesuits, and he was rather quickly uh, admitted to the Society of Jesus. And shortly after his ordination to the priesthood, he was asked to go to the German town of Ingolstadt. There was a request by Duke William IV. The request was made by the Duke to St. Ignatius Loyola. He said, will you please bring some of your Jesuits here to this university town of Ingolstadt? It has been totally corrupted by the heresies of the Reformation, and I want a strong Catholic influence brought to this university town. So that's exactly what St. Peter Canisius did. And he turned around the University of Ingolstadt and made it a Catholic center of learning. It was a real feather in its cap, if you will, for the, the first major undertaking that he did as a Jesuit. Well, he had so much success in Ingolstadt, that uh, his Jesuit superiors decided they would send him to the city of Vienna. Now, in Vienna, he really encountered very serious difficulties. He found that great, great city in far worse condition than Ingolstadt. Many parishes were without clergy, and he and his brother Jesuits had to go around and do parish work and, and fill in for the, the lack of priests. They also had to teach in the newly founded university in Vienna, there was not a single priest who had been ordained for 20 years. Monasteries lay desolate. Members of religious orders were jeered at in the streets. Nine-tenths of the inhabitants of the city of Vienna had abandoned the active practice of the Catholic faith. So Peter Canisius had a great deal of work to do. And he set about doing his work, first of all, preaching. Now, he had a Rhineland German accent, and many of the Viennese people did not like his German accent. So his first success of preaching was very, very minimal. Because of this language barrier, and also because of the fact that people have been away from the active practice of the faith so long, they, that they had a resistance built up to it. But gradually, he broke the people down one by one by one. And he could see Vienna coming back to the practice of the faith. Not that he single-handedly did it, but the sheer force of his presence in Vienna uh, was, was such that the city began a slow but sure turnabout. From Vienna, he went to Prague. And he accomplished much the same in Prague. He also wrote a magnificent catechism of the Catholic faith. It ranked for the Catholic Church in post-Reformation times just as strongly as Luther's Lutheran catechism did 
for the Protestants. In other words, the Catechism of St. Peter Canisius was a defense of the Catholic faith in refutation, of course, of Luther and of the various Lutheran doctrines that were being spread around. Luther's Catechism was enormously influential for the Reformation. Peter Canisius' Catechism was enormously influential for the Counter-Reformation. Is it hard to see, then, why this German Jesuit, Peter Canisius, would have been declared a doctor of the church? One year after Pope Pius XI declared Peter Canisius a doctor of the church, in 1926, he bestowed the designation of doctor once again. This time not on a Jesuit, but rather on a Carmelite, a Spanish Carmelite, a Spanish Carmelite known to the world as St. John of the Cross. John of the Cross is someone who has influenced many, many, many souls, thousands, millions of souls through the generations. He was born in the year 1542 in Old Castile, studied at a catechism school, as it was called, and then went to the Jesuit college in Medina, where his family had moved after his father died. As we know so well, he did not enter the Jesuits. Rather, he entered the Carmelite Fathers in the same town. As a Carmelite, he continued his studies at Salamanca and was ordained to the priesthood in 1567. Well, shortly after his ordination to the priesthood, he was home on a visitation once to the town of Medina, and it was here that he first met St. Teresa of Avila. We have them here, by the way. Here's John of the Cross. And if we come over just a little bit to the left, Teresa of Avila. So we have them both beautifully depicted here on this, on this set. Well, when John of the Cross first met Teresa of Avila, he said, you know, I would like to enter a religious community that will give me a much more strict discipline and prayer life than the Carmelites are doing. I, I want to be a Carthusian. And St. Teresa of Avila listened very carefully to what John of the Cross said. And this she said in reply, do not be a Carthusian. Help me in my efforts to reform the Carmelite order. That is how we got the beginnings of the, the reformation of the Carmelites under John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. It was Teresa of Avila persuading this young, newly ordained Carmelite priest to join her in her reforming efforts. One commentator takes up the story, one biographer of John. He says this, Reform and renewal always have their enemies. The constant power of evil, well-intentioned people who are misinformed or unwilling to change, men and women who gain power from religion and are reluctant to let it go, and perhaps most insidiously, those whose apparent reforming zeal masks self-interested motives. Not everyone was enthusiastic about the Theresian Carmelite reform. Both Teresa and John had their critics, and opponents were, were, were numerous. Many alarming rumors circulated about what the discalled Carmelites were up to, and not all of Teresa's followers always behaved admirably. During the reform, there were not only clashes between the discalled Carmelites and their parent order, the, the primitive or ancient observance Carmelites, but also there were conflicts between Roman, imperial, and Carmelite authorities.
So whenever you begin to try to reform an order, you are going to run across many people who are very suspicious of your motives. What St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila wanted to do in the formation of the discount Carmelites, as opposed to the ancient order that had become somewhat lax, was to infuse the Carmelite order with a renewed spirituality. Well, when they tried this, and as they went about it, an awful lot of dissension entered the entire Carmelite order. Dissension became so bad that the ancient observance of Carmel had John arrested, and they ordered him to abandon the reform. He refused, and they had him imprisoned in Toledo. He was subject to many, many hardships and to great sufferings. Finally, he was able to escape. He continued his reform. But there was even a lot of, there was even a lot of division within the Discal Carmelites themselves. And finally, John fell from power in the Discal Carmelites, if we, if we can call it power. And he had much, much suffering at the end of his life, much as St. Alphonsus Liguri had had in the Redemptorist, John of the Cross had in the Carmelites. He died, we are told, by, from a fever in 1521. Well, he was much, much preoccupied in the course of his life with events in the Carmelite order. But certainly we know that he was remembered for much more than just his reform of the Carmelite order. He is remembered for three magnificent books, The Dark Night of the Soul, The Spiritual Canticle, and The Living Flame of Love. The teachings that one finds in these three magnificent spiritual works give the impression of a person with a very, very unified vision. Often in life, you know, we tend to separate our natural life from our supernatural life. We separate our interior life from our exterior life. We separate our spiritual life from our material life. What St. John of the Cross was trying to do in all of his spiritual works was to integrate all of these aspects of our life into one unending search or union with, or search, I should say, for union with God. One unending search for union with God in which you, you interspersed all of the activities, spiritual and material, natural and supernatural. There was nothing of your life that was excluded from your ongoing search for union with God. As he writes, the soul enamored of the word, her bridegroom, the Son of God, longs for a union with him through clear and essential vision. She records her longings of love and complains to him of his absence. So the spiritual life, then, is a constant source of union with God in which seekers not only find God, but they find their true selves. And the magnificent part of this spiritual journey in which one is seeking out God and one is finding his or her true self, the magnificent part of it all is that there is not a single soul in the world who is not invited to begin the search. Every soul in the world is invited to begin this magnificent search. God gives many souls the talent and the grace for advancing, John writes. And should they desire to make the effort, should they desire to make the effort, they would arrive at this high state. John of the Cross wrote much of his work for discalled Carmelites, naturally. But there is also something in it for everyone. There is something in it for all the members of the laity. Because the call for union with God is something that we are all called to. What was he talking about? He was talking about a universal call to holiness. 
And in talking about a universal call to holiness, St. John of the Cross really anticipated the Second Vatican Council by many, many centuries. That spiritual life, that call to holiness, John sees as a continual, continual process of growth. And if we're not growing, then we're regressing. But we are never, ever staying the same. It is a dark journey. There's no question about that. It entails a great deal of patience. It entails a great deal of constancy in all of the trials and all of the tribulations that God allows. It is a dark night to get there. There's no question about it. Purification of all of our human appetites and desires is not easy. It involves a great loss. We travel along the road of faith, and that is not always easy. Our final object is God, and oftentimes we cannot find him. We cannot see him. This search, says one of John's biographers, this search passes through the nights and is, in fact, itself a night. The disciple, constantly renewing a choice-oriented love for God, makes this personal exodus and Passover to a life of union with God. The end of the search is the transforming experience of union with God and of personal renewal. It's demanding, but it's very realistic, says John, and every soul in the world is invited to make this search for union with God. The very interesting thing, you know, about St. John of the Cross is that he accomplished it so well in the midst of a very, very busy, a very active life. As he was achieving his union with God, what was he doing? He was administering all the mundane, temporal, daily, ongoing concerns of the discalled Carmelites. He wasn't off someplace removed from the world. He was immersed in the world, in the concerns of his order, and in the immersion and the activity of life, he found God. What a wonderful example he is for all of us who lead busy, busy lives. We can achieve union with God. We can achieve and overcome the dark night of the soul and live with him eternally.